0: Thank you. Be there. Good morning, everybody. Um, as Mark says, my name's Bridget Harris. I'm the co-founder and CEO of You Can Book Me. Um, you Can Book Me is a SaaS tool. We do online scheduling. Um, we're also freemium, so some of the numbers you hear me talk about, it's explained by the fact we have a large number of free users and then a, a proportion of those guys pay us upgrades. Um, this was actually a couple of months ago. We, 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 we're, we're up to around 13 million bookings to date in terms of the tool. We do about a million bookings a month. The vast majority of people who use You Can Book Me are in North America, but we're spread around all over the world. So um, the title of this talk is The Busker's Guide to Running a Tech Startup. I'm not sure whether the term busker has, you know, comes up often um, when when people talk about software businesses, but just in case you're wondering, I am actually a busker. Um, That's me uh, last month kicking off um, St. Patrick's Day celebrations in our local pub. And um, I, I started busking when I was very, um, a very young teenager looking for, for a, an easy way to make money. And it's actually an incredible experience if you put your case down in Victoria Station, you start playing. And um, somebody walks by who you've never met, who you know, obviously didn't know you were going to be there, and sticks some money in your case. Um, and I got addicted to it, it was a brilliant way to make money every weekend. And, and that's, I think, what I hope you would recognize it feels like to be an entrepreneur. It's basically the name of the game, isn't it? It's about getting people to give you money, people who, who, who didn't know that they needed the product that you're offering. And so, whether it's a busker, or whether you call yourself a, an entrepreneur, or a hustler, or a disruptor, or a pirate, you know, or even if it's just a business leader, um, you know, all of this is about taking the risk and the, and the leap to, asking people to give you money for what you're selling. And, and, in, and involved in that, I think, is a good deal of busking. So and at any point, by the way, and I hopefully I'll, I'll leave plenty of time for questions, but I, I, I certainly don't mind being interrupted if you've got any questions along the way. But if at any point um, you think that anything I'm saying is not consistent with busking, um, I will I will happily explain why, but that element of improvisation, um, you know, not following the rules. When you're when you're a, a session musician, you know, you you, you you play by ear. You don't you don't just simply follow the dots. Um, and there's a lot of um, enjoyment to it as well. So that's why I love doing it. Um, and I think probably also why, therefore, I love running running our startup. But the first rule of being a busker, running a startup, is hire professional musicians. Um, almost as quickly as you possibly can, because um, busking can only really get you so far, and one of the things that I've learned in the last couple of years is once you get a team of professional, you know, hopefully classical musicians in, in this kind of um, organisation, you can get a lot more out of um, what you're trying to achieve. Busking basically only takes you so far. So um, I want to talk a little bit about the background of You Can Book Me, and um, so you get to understand a bit more about, about the way we've, we've grown up as a company. And then I want to spend the majority of the talk talking about one thing, which is hiring. How do you get from, um, you know, uh, sort of being a busker to a point where you've hired people and, um, you, you know, you're, you're, we're, we're now looking at taking sort of the next stage of our, of our journey. Um, and one of the most important things that we decided fairly early on, and it's come up a lot in the last couple of days, so I'm, and I'm really interested in this topic. So... Um, Forgive me if I go into it for a little bit. Is that we're bootstrapped, so we didn't we didn't take on VC funding. We um, we decided to go it alone. Um, and so th- I'm sure you know this quote: "We've got uh, no money, so we have to think." Ernest Rutherford. This is this is obviously sums up what being a bootstrapper is about. And actually, Rand was just talking about it, and it's come up that if you don't have a big runway of money, you actually potentially takes take decisions more slowly. You have less options, and money doesn't sort of flood the um, the channel. Um, and and maybe cloud some of the decisions that you've got to make anyway. Money doesn't necessarily make things easier, I suppose, is my point. Um, But the temptation of taking money is really there. And and if if you're like us and we hadn't got any experience of running a tech startup before, when you come across angel investors and people, people kind of give you this expectation that taking on investment is part and parcel of running a startup and that there is no alternative. Um, and, and they're really kind of emphatic about it. And they say, you know, if you, if you, if you take on um, angel investing, you'll grow quicker. Oh. oh, I didn't. Oh, no. That's it. You'll, that's it. you'll grow quicker. <laughs> and, um, you know, there we are. You'll, uh, you'll make more money, and, um, and you'll access great advice. And I'm sure that's true. And I'm sure that has been very you know, true for, for a lot of people. But they also sort of kind of the implication is, and if you don't do this, then you'll fail. You know, if you don't do this, you might as well go home because this is the only way. But I find that really hard. I sort of, I I, I kind of, I basically, maybe I was being naive, but I just didn't really understand what they were saying because when you sort of start talking a little bit about the detail, about the valuation and the metrics and the maths associated with what money kind of they're going to give you, um, they'll start saying, oh, no, no, we need 10 times what we've given you. Um, in about sort of five to seven years. they're like, what? What? What does that mean? That means, that means that we would have to be, you know, like hundreds of millions of pounds. What, what are you talking about? And they said, oh, that's because 90% of the businesses that we invest in fail. So you're... So, uh, hang on, hang on. So let me just get this right. Nine out of ten businesses you invest in fail. Yes, yes, that's right. That's a very high rate of failure amongst startups. So I have to make up... I have to make up ten times more than I otherwise would have to do in order to make up for your bad investment choices. <laughs> and, they're, and they're like, well, no, no, it doesn't exactly work like that. But I said, but then you're also saying that if, you, if I don't take your money, I'm also going to fail. So it's sort of like, hang on, this doesn't make any sense to me. So maybe, maybe I just don't understand it, and we'll put you to one side, and I'll just carry on. And actually, as, I, as we've carried on, we've, we've understood, in fact, that isn't the case for a lot of companies. And you will find people who will, who will give you a totally different um, point of view. So this is Ben Chestnut. Um, he's the CEO of Mailchimp or co-founder of Mailchimp. Obviously, Mailchimp is a unicorn tech company. They've just, you know, they haven't got any flies on anybody really. And he said, "It is a really simple point, and I think we've heard it from so many speakers now. It takes about ten years before your company hits its its stride, really hits its stride." So. His point is, be patient. You know, the the journey that you're going on isn't some kind of quick flip, you know, and it's sort of 12 months and you make 100 million and then you go off and do something else. Actually, we're in it for the long term. And the the learning that we um, put into our product and our customers and running our business takes a long time. The mistakes that you make, the things that you then understand you should have done differently, and the opportunity and time that you need to get that right, that takes a long time. And it's actually becomes a very enjoyable process if you realize that that is actually the point and the exit the thing at the other end you know might be nice if that ever comes along but actually that's not necessarily the goal for the entrepreneur. Um, The other um, company that's a big sort of hero company of mine is Basecamp I know David Heinemar Hansen has spoken at this conference a couple of times and he's really kind of he's full-on about this whole topic so he's great Um, I'd read his last uh, medium um, blog post that he was supposed to deliver it um, a web summit this year, and it's just one big long rant about VCs, but he says that the strategies employed to pursue the 30% for $3 million are often in direct opposition to the strategies needed for a 0.3% shot at making 300 million. His point is that the financial motivations, incentives of not just the angels, but also the VCs, the LPs that they have to report into, their time scale at what they want to try to achieve, could not just be, might not just be incompatible with your um, financial planning they might actually actively damage it they might actually you know this this idea that you're going to make more money you're going to make more money for them you're not necessarily going to make more money for you because your financial and business plans might actually be distorted to a point where you know you end up really at the end of the food chain on in the financials to do with your company and then this final point that being you know taking on and being in the great big slipstream of VCs and I must say you know the rant has just actually proved the opposite that it that it doesn't always work out like this and so it sounds it's great that there's a good example of, of the alternative this is Vinod Kosler, who is himself a VC but he was obviously from Sun Microsystems he, he he's another great ranter on stage so he's a great great person to listen to he says maybe some percentage larger than 95% of VCs add zero value and 70% of VCs add negative value in advising. And what he's saying is just don't listen to them. So even if you do take money, nod and smile. Because And, and who was it? Nick, uh, yesterday, did exactly that and obviously was right. Um, so, so it's not obvious. And I, I basically, I suppose my point is, is that running a startup, running a company, is going to be really hard. And you've got the hard way or you've got the tricky way. But, but neither way is really going to really help you. And this is sort of what we have learned in, in, in our decision to be bootstrapped and, um, and, and the way that's affected many other parts of our, of our company. So I want to talk another, one other aspect of our company before I get onto to hiring, which is culture, which is what sort of company have we built. So this is another one of my favorite quotes. Um, Government is the badge of lost innocence. And um, this is obviously a political quote, Thomas Paine as a theorist. But if, if you want to know what that feels like, it's when you suddenly realise that in terms of HR, you have to have a policies and procedures handbook. And you have to have a policies and procedures handbook about, you know, sort of holiday and, um, and expenses. And it has to all be written down and there has to be a, you know, a thing. And it all just feels incredibly boring. And, um, and it's not necessarily the company that um, you, you know, I, would nef- I would be ambitious to, to want to build. Because I think my perception is that the, this is what what your average corporate company looks like and um, you know so when once you get to sort of the IBM scale you have a very familiar hierarchy um, of all the teams and departments are in their containers everybody's on the ship everybody knows where they're supposed to be you know the captain's at the top and famously obviously with supertankers very hard to turn them around they only go at a certain speed they have no flexibility but at least the <coughs> chain of command is really obvious to everybody. You know, everybody knows what's going on there. Um, but given the fact that we have an opportunity to build up our own company, we can do what we like, this is the kind of ship that we want to be on. So um, very, very different. Um, so we, so if, I'm gonna have to, if I basically have to be on this ship for 15 years, oh my goodness, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not doing the super tanker. So this is what we're, gonna, this is what we're aiming for. Um, you know, people can, can get on and off by a helicopter. There's a lot of walking around, a lot of transparency, a lot of openness. Um, and a lot of trying to you know, understand what the journey feels like, and not just the destination. We're not just going back and forth across the Pacific, whatever. We're actually trying to enjoy the journey. So this is our team. We're 12 people right now. We're a remote team. I'm going to talk a little bit about that as well um, in a second. So this is our team. We're, we're based around North America, Europe. We have Niamh down here, and um, she's in Dublin. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're a very happy bunch. And the, and the reason why I've got this photograph is, and this is just a quick shout out for zoom.us, in case you're wondering, because it's the only video tool that appears to be able to do this job, um, which is that I'm make really, really um, um, I'm sure that in our company, and there's Keith, who's, who's just down here, my co-founder, um, is that even though we work out of, three of us are working out of the same office, and then Claire also remote, um, uh, commutes in sometimes, is that we all have our own box. Even when I'm sat next to Keith in one of these meetings, i like, no, I want my own box. Because my own box means that everybody in our company has their own box. And as a remote company, when you're distributed, you're sending out signals as part of your culture about what kind of ship you're on, basically. And to that end, the team obviously didn't want us to uh, give us the wrong impression of what team meetings are really like. So that's what they sent through shortly after, just to say that's what our meetings you know, end up with. So the question, the point about um, this, this journey is how, you know, how did we get from, well, not from those guys, but how did we get from these guys? How did we get from sort of a busking beginning um, through to building a team like this? And I suppose what I've learned is you can't busk hiring. It's something that we did at the beginning make quite a few mistakes um, with. Um, and, you know, busking has, its, has, has a great, um, Uh, place when you're trying to hustle and you know make up something that didn't exist before but actually hiring is the most important thing I think everybody has said it in this conference the most important thing that not just um, a CEO has to do, but also other people that you hire themselves will have to do if you want to grow. If you have taken on money, it's, that is what the money is for. It's to spend it on um, often hiring people. And so to have a good strategy for hiring people um, and to know about it and to read about it is something I really recommend you guys do. And that's what I did. And this is why I'm here is to start to share, share with you a little bit about that. And if the first place I would go is Joel Spolsky's um, a gorilla Guy to Interviewing. It's a three-part blog series he ha- he has on Joel on Software. I know he's also spoken, I think, isn't he, uh, Mark? So, he, so, and he puts it, as soon as he, he talks about it, you think, God, yes, yes, that's exactly right. He says there are only two possible outcomes to this decision, hire or no hire. And um, and he says, you know, a no hire, is, isn't, a hire isn't somebody that, oh, well, uh, you know they, they didn't do very well in the, in the interview but maybe they're a bit nervous or actually they they weren't quite they don't quite have the experience but maybe we could train them up or maybe they're not right for our department uh, but maybe they could be good for somebody else. Like they're all no hires so don't kid yourself i think what you're looking for is hire, and 99 percent of the people you're going to talk to for your company at least are going to be no hires and then the other point that he says is about the sort of person you're looking for and this again is, sounds very simple, is smart and gets things done. And so his argument is you don't want smart doesn't get things done, everybody knows that um, person, and then also worse, um, gets things done, not smart, because there's a lot of bad things that suddenly get done. So smart gets things done. So that, that's, that's, that's the aim. And so when at the very beginning, we, so again, as a sort of a... Symptom of being bootstrapped, we were a very slow burn as a company. So we started, it was just me and Keith um, for a long time. And so as we, as we hired, um, it, we, ha- we made a lot of assumptions about what it was going to feel like when we were a much bigger company. And the first is, uh, this is where we, are com- where we live in Bedfordshire in the, in the United Kingdom. Um, and the first thing that you know, I was afraid of or fearful of was that how are we going to get people to come and work for us in in Bedford, you know, that um, nobody's ever heard of Bedford. Um, we're going to have to think of some kind of homegrown talent inside Bedford because, you know, basically there is London and um, we're not London. And, you know, anybody, you know, anybody who is anybody who wants to work for a tech startup, you know, wants to work in London. So I had, I had all these theories and plans about it uh, to try to solve that problem. The second assumption I made was, you know, you see these, these, these stories about um, this has came up quite recently Haseeb Qureshi, who managed to get 250,000 dollars a year from Airbnb um, and you know you've got this kind of massive cattle market of, of um, uh, tech companies hiring developers and you know if um, Seattle is bad I'm sure Silicon Valley is even worse and that you know everybody ratchets it up and um, and not only that not only are these massive tech companies able to pay these huge salaries but also there is all of the the kind of you know the equity share option hedged vested long-term pooled stuff and um, you know any conversation that we were going to have with any developer I felt like this is what it was going to be like and it was just oh my god there's no, there's just no way um, we're going to ever be able to compete and work and get any of those kind of developers my third assumption was a sort of a feeling like who would ever believe we were a tech startup who would ever believe you know, we knew what we were doing, who would want to do it? It's like an imposter syndrome kind of at its worst because you sort of, it's almost like an inverse. So you're grateful for people who want to work for you. You're grateful that if anybody sort of takes you seriously. And, um, and we, we, had, we had to get over that because we were basically, we were wrong about all three assumptions. And we did make mistakes because of those assumptions, but thankfully we sort of got over them quite quickly. Um, and the first one was because of the first developer we hired and his, his name is Antonio and he lives in Spain. Um, And Spain is palpably not Bedford, and so um, so the first thing Antonio said was to me like, "You do know I have no intention of moving to Bedford. In fact, I've never even heard of Bedford. So I live in Seville in Spain. It's lovely. It's hot. You know, the food's good. Um, Are you happy with that?" And me and Keith were like, "Well, yeah, of course. You know, why, 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 why wouldn't we? Because you sort of start to sort of follow through on the logic." And this is a sort of a snapshot of some of our active users from Intercom, which is obviously another great tool. Um, and there we are in Bedford, that's in, in the little United Kingdom. I do actually recommend you come to Bedford. It's a very nice place. Um, but, um, but you know, all of our users in You Can Book Me, like, they're not in Bedford. You know, like, they're, they're trying to do online scheduling. They don't care. So like, nobody's ever said, I'm not going to use You Can Book Me because you're based in Bedford. So I thought, OK, that's fine. So so then, you know, in terms of like a map of the world from a You Can Book Me perspective, we're completely global. I mean, actually, surely that is the most exciting opportunity that tech, especially cloud tools, offers. It's just irrelevant. Like, location is irrelevant. And actually, as it happened, we do need to hire people in the US, and we have done, because that's where our users are. So um, we need to supply the service to the people where they are, nothing to do with where I choose to live. So... Um, And then the final assumption, this idea that, you know, nobody would ever want to work with us, well that actually was fairly easily solved, we just invested in some, you know, branding and creative um, promotion and so this is on our jobs page and we promote the things that we think are important about why we like working for You Can Book Me and therefore why somebody else would want to work for us. So we're flexible, family friendly and we have team members all over the world. Um, We care about our impact, we're a very values-led company, so we do lots of not-for-profit stuff, and we're very open about um, what problems we're trying to solve and very collaborative. Um, And then there's a great team. And what we found is, actually, if we're sort of... Rather than sort of trying to pretend that we're, you know, um, we're a slightly kind of second class version of Airbnb. Actually, the people that have come to work for us actively want to work for a bootstrap company. They want, we, we've given them the opportunity of saying, this is the journey, this is our growth, this is what you can do with it. And actually, we don't have VCs giving us bad advice, or indeed VCs giving us any kind of advice. Um, you know, we can do what we like, and we've also got to, um, you know, we, we have to forge our own path, and that's the exciting challenge. And so, for some of the engineers we've hired, it is actually the active, um, point that has led them to come to work for us. And there they are in Bedford, in, uh, in, our, in our, um, one of our face-to-face meetups. So it's one of the, you know, anybody wants to talk to me about remote work and building a remote company, it's something I'm also very interested in, and obviously take a lot of um, inspiration from companies like Buffer and others. But, but, but face-to-face meetups is just as important and you've got to invest in it. And, and, and there's no sense that being a remote company is some kind of cheapskate. Um, move as far as we're concerned. So we have set up in Ireland and in in Spain and in America to hire people. All of these guys are employed. You know, they have the benefits and and protection associated with with being employed by us. So there's a a lot of administrative and legal hassle that we've had to go through to to get to that point. But it's because we believe that what we're doing is building a company with employees um, and not just trying to kind of build some sort of skeleton sort of workforce to try to prop up me and Keith in Bedford. You know, there's, we, we've embraced the fact that we're remote, but then it's also lovely to have these guys come, come to Bedford to see us. So I wanted to take you through how we hire and what that process looks like. Um, in, in quite a lot of detail. I mean, I'll try to sort of skip through it, but it's, but it, but it, it uh, um, in a way, it's a little bit like the um, the follow the re- relentless follow-up emails that actually were fairly relentless about this and quite committed, and it's worked really, really well. And don't skip a stage, basically. So, as I said, the point, the the, the sort of. Uh, the starting point of us, that's me and Keith in, in our office, and you know, there's just it's just us, and you know what that feels like, and you're either there, in in fact, this was our first little office that we had, we've since branched out to next door as well, but we started off in the coffee shop, and um, you know, you wear 15 hats, and I think the first thing that um, you have to realise when you're looking to hire people is it, is that you need to hire people, I think Nick said this yesterday, you've got to hire people smarter than you, better than you. These people need to be um, of an order better at what you've hired them to do than you're capable of doing. Because obviously that, that's just kind of going to be, you're going to be crushed if you think that it's, it's all going to be down to you. So this is this is um, the te- one of our team meetings. And actually Claire is one of our recent uh, recruits, she's head of operations. When, um, when I was interviewing her, she told me that what she loves doing at the weekends is she's... Um, uh, she plays in an orchestra, she's a, a flautist, so she's an actual classical musician, and um, I said, oh, I'm a busker, and her, her face just looks slightly horrified, <laughs> and, I, and I was like, no, I really am, I really am a busker, and then I said, but that's why I've hired you, Claire, because classical musicians <laughs> play all the dots, so, um, and, that, and you're, you know, you're legal and compliance and, regu- you know, this is good news that I'm not doing it anymore so um so that's so that's sort of one of the principles you know look to you know you can't be egotistical about it it's not you're not trying to you know win the award as the best employee of the company you're trying to get a team you're trying to spread the load and, and and have a very high bar so i'd also completely um, reiterate and agree with with some of the speakers and Rand's just said it. it's just you know you've got it's much better to hire to, to pay the the most you can for the highest talented people you can attract than try to kind of get a lower lower grade pool where you're sort of hedging your bets because actually what i found is if you try to hire junior people you spend all your time managing them so it really doesn't save you any time so the advert going back to the fact that we're a remote company um, we advertise, depending on what sort of uh, uh, role we've been filling, we, you know, we obviously go for one of these obvious job boards. And all I would say is, um, make it clear for us, um, because we're remote, we make it very clear in our, in our adverts that we're remote and that's who we're looking for. And we're looking for people who want to work remote and get a lot out of it. We're not looking for people who, you know, think it's about working from home so they can do their pottery business on the side. We're looking for people who actually want to work for a company as a full-time professional job and career with all of the things that come with it, but happen to do it from a coffee shop or a co-working space or indeed from from their home if they want to. Um, and then we have this process, which is along the sort of the Joel lines of things, which we're looking for the hires and the no hires. And actually, it's very easy, because you stop thinking about hires. You don't think about who you're going to hire at all. You just think about who you're not going to hire, who are the obvious people that are not going to work in your company. And on stage one, when the applications flood in, it's really easy. You can exclude, obviously, about sort of 85% of them. Um, the first is, the, to whom it may concern. Anybody that sends me a cover letter that says... To whom it may concern? Well, there's only 12 of us. You know, you can, you can Google me. I mean, honestly. Like, I, it would probably take less than a minute for you to find out who it, con- it concerns me, you know? <laughs> or, they, or, or they say, to the hiring manager, no, but this is, this is the operations job that includes it. There is no hiring manager, so that's very bizarre. And also, anybody that applies to your company where they just have their generic logo, their generic cover letter, their generic CV, they haven't really thought about the job. They don't really know what they're, go- what they're doing this is an example this is for our ui ux job the job we're a saas tool we're a SAS tool and the job was for ui and they say non applicable so <laughs> it's non applicable what examples they're inspired by for the job they were applying for so that's a no hire and then the last no hires you know are just it's just the people obviously that you just think i, I don't i don't think you're going to it's going to work out i don't think this <laughs> It's just, I, I good luck, good luck with you, but it's not going to work out. So obviously that's a very easy process. You don't want to spend a lot of time on it. It's just super easy because you'll have obviously potential hires in the in the pack. Don't spend any time. Don't spend any time reading cover letters when it starts with To whom it may concern is immediately a no hire because then what we do is that we then shortlist and we've done this for lots of jobs and we send a Google Docs form. So this was for JavaScript. This is for. Um, product advisor, sort of customer support person, and we take sort of lots of questions about their actual um, uh, you know, name and address and um, more details about them, um, but then we also put in a whole load of questions, so we, we give them opportunities to talk about things that they 've done, you know problems that they 've solved, how they would handle situations, anything that will give us an opportunity to really understand more about how they could apply the, you know, the work that we 're asking them to do. And the great advantage of this is that you then start to be able to compare and contrast some of those applications and those answers. And what I'm a big believer in, and then your applications flood in, what we tend to do is there's always um, a group of people who are interviewing who haven't seen the lead-up and the details of that process um, to the people who've shortlisted and vice versa. So as a result of that, you can anonymize the data. So what we do is that that spreadsheet comes in. I chop off all of the all of the name and address, their college, you know where they live, their hourly rate, um, so that you don't start thinking if they're a $250,000 a year Airbnb engineer, my God, they're gonna have to be brilliant. But if she is a $15 you know, an hour Ukrainian, like, oh no, that's probably not gonna be worth it because you're, obviously your subconscious bias immediately comes in at every stage. And so what's really worked is that once you take all of these questions and let's say the tech team are are looking at those answers, they can just compare five answers to the same question and they have no idea who wrote that question, who wrote the, who wrote the answer, and then they can immediately start to exclude the no hires. And this is when we have to start to put in much deeper analysis of who is our definition of a no hire. So the first no hire is anybody that includes information about their job which is absolutely irrelevant to their ability to do it. So, you know, anything which is kind of totally off topic and you think, no, no, no. you just spent half an hour writing out this application for You Can Book Me. You know, you should have thought about what kind of company you're working for. Why are you talking to me about this? The next one is really unfortunate typos. Anything where, just do you see that? Isn't that awful? So, um, it's very close to its heart at 7-Eleven. But so anything where, and you know... Obviously, most tech companies, work, you know, we're looking for coders, we're looking for people who've really got accurate brains and attention to detail. And if you say, I'm really good at attention to detail, and then you come up with a terrible typo, that's, that's you know, invariably a no-hire. Um, so, yes, we do online scheduling. People have sent us in letters when they say, I don't use digital calendars, I just use good old-fashioned pen and paper. And you think, okay, well, you know, that's good, I like that, you know, good luck with you, but we're a tech company, and you really need to, you know, like tech, and you don't need to think, I will learn how to like tech if you give me the job, it's just like, no, you really do need to like tech. Um, Anybody that denigrates their opponents as a way of trying to promote themselves. Um, Anybody that talks about their work colleagues, when you put these questions to them in the questionnaires, and their stories are all about how they disagreed with somebody else because they got it wrong so that they did something better. And even if, I mean, on objective terms, there was maybe something, there was some merit to it. I think that when you see that kind of behavior, what you're looking at is somebody who is not trying to go for objective, talent and quality but they're going for relative um, talent and quality and and especially when you're a remote company it's absolutely toxic because it brings in so much um, you know lack of trust in any personal relationship when you think somebody's going to be slagging you off every two minutes. Anybody that's sort of weird about money um, talks about how much money they've earned or in some way um, tries to think that money is going to be the main kind of driver in the discussion because as a company we try to be as transparent as possible and whenever we hire anybody I say to them we, pu- we publish our salaries we share them internally you know we're a bootstrap company so there is no kind of long um, channel of cash that's Um, available so you have to be okay with that and basically I will pay you as much as I can and as generously as I can but there isn't really a sort of a negotiation and anybody that's weird about money you know um, I think is probably going to not be right for our company references so we, we follow up on our references. It's really important. Um, if somebody is going to be weird about what they say, you know, if they don't give you their references or if they're... I'm, I would very happily obviously just take up a... Ref, I'll take up a reference for the previous employer before I've made an offer and then for the current employer once I've made an offer. And you obviously talk to those employers about strengths and challenges and, and try to give them an, as much opportunity to give you a sense of who, it, who, who the person is that you've hired. So then the, fi- so the, the, the stage of, term- of turning out all those no-hires is we then have a video call. And I, I, at that point, it starts to speed up. And this is another thing I would really recommend, is that you do not want half of your company sitting around a laptop you know, for an hour on somebody who you know was a no-hire in the first five minutes. So we only schedule... Um, 20 minute video calls and we'll try to keep it down to as many potential hires any no hire that we can we can exclude at this point we will because we're starting to seriously waste company time on potentially no hires so we might interview four or five people for 20 minutes and really you know at that point it's it's a sort of a it's a stop go moment isn't it You're, you we have had um video interview panels where we just haven't found anybody there's just been no we've managed to exclude everybody um, because basically at every stage we're looking for a reason not to hire <laughs> it's really positive if you're looking to work for you, you can book me and you watch this it's just like we don't, we don't want to hire you so we're looking for reasons not to hire you because again one of Joel's advices is that it's a terrible mistake to accidentally hire a no-hire, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's not ideal to have overlooked somebody who would have been a great hire, but you didn't hire them, but it's a really bad mistake that you have to reverse later through firing them um, if, if, if you make a mistake. So, um, but, but of course at some point you have to sort of say, well, if not them, then who? You know, if you get to a point where you can't find a reason, you know, you think, well, if it's, well, maybe it's one of these guys, then I'll hire them, but, you know, at some point you have to take the leap to say... This isn't going to be my company. I have to obviously we're we're branching out and kind of hiring hiring new. So um, I do you, you know uh, there is this final stage that we which we do which again I've I copied that from Buffer which is we have a three month contract which is a sort of a sort of a suck it and see moment for both of us because I think by that point you found somebody. Who is as interested to know if they're going to fit working for you as you are about whether you want to hire them? And that's the kind of person you should be looking for, interested in what you can do for them um, as well as the other way around. And so that three month contract will, it's, it, we set it up in slightly different ways depending on which country we're employing somebody, but it is largely about an opportunity to give sort of face to face and um, direct working relationships you know sort of set up and we know what it feels like and we will fly people around the place we'll have you come up with colleagues in in the us talking to them and meeting them and we'll fly around people in in europe so that we actually have eyeballed people before after a three-month period this is you know this is hopefully what we're going for which is that we have we've done it and we've 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 made a hire and i'm on 33 minutes mark so we've got time for questions Very good. Right, stick your hands up if you've got questions. Uh, who's got the microphone first? I, I, I also have a small software company and I was curious on your things on hiring. Yes. Um, you said that you like to hire bright people mm-hmm. and the examples you gave suggested that you like to hire experienced, which to some extent, particularly when you're trying to do something new, can be a double-edged sword. So I wondered where, oh, thank you. where you are on the spectrum of insisting that people arrive able to do the job you want from day one versus people who can actually invent a job for themselves or not necessarily have the experience, but, but hit the ground running. Yeah, that's a really good question. And we've sort of done both actually. So so, um, so self, the only, I would say the only downside to being a remote company, and we have a, we've had experience of this, is it? it is very hard to hire junior people remotely, because they do deserve more support and training, no matter how bright they are, you're, you're the ones um, <clears throat> hopefully trying to sort of channel them. So we did have um, a, a junior tech woman who worked for us, um, and she went off to be a software developer for computer games, for games developer so then we couldn't stop her, because she's a a games designer. But she worked for us in the office, and she was absolutely brilliant, and um, I would have loved for her to carry on working for us and for us to sort of build her up, even though she didn't have any experience of what we wanted her to do. And so I can see, I think, that if you're you know if, if that's the mindset of the company then there's then you, you you can essentially set yourself up to order to do that but for us we don't really have that luxury so we are looking for smart and experienced people but like I said before we've gone through this period of, I, all of the people I've hired are, are essentially senior managers so one of their jobs is to be able to do absolutely everything about their job now and then to hire people down the line as we grow um, to, sort of, uh, to sort of break it up a little bit so you're looking for not just experienced um, and smart you're also looking for um, sort of a range of of skills so people who don't mind getting their hands dirty and being able to um, do a whole load of other things because being in a smart startup with only 12 people everybody has to basically muck in Um, and so there's some people we've hired who were not actually at the point of the senior manager experience that we were looking for. So we've just come to a conclusion of like, OK, well, let's let's take that three months and, and look at, at six months, and let's see what you can achieve in the six months. And then in a way, going back to the ship that we want to be on, part of it is about empowering people and giving them kind of internal uh, motivation and autonomy to grow their own, their own role within the company. So um, I, I would always hire smart and experienced um, over smart and inexperienced, because as I said, just from my experience, the, the resources you have to put into that, unless you're a very big company, is not something that we, we have a lot of resources to do. Does that answer your question? Um, aside from hiring, what are the other kind of key challenges you find in terms of remote working and how have you overcome them? Because I guess it's a relatively new concept. Um, so, in a way, it's, it's to avoid being dragged into the Bedford. Uh, Things as I said, me and Keith live in Bedford, and there's another other sort of, uh, full-time senior person, and so it's the communication, it's the it's the adoption of of what you're going to do. You can't, it doesn't happen by accident. It's not just like an easy thing to do. So um, everything about our project management, everything about the way we share and collaborate, everything about the way we use video tools. We have you know we have chat channels and um, we use HipChat, and so you know all of the channels that we're using to share um, are during the day as a team we do it consciously and we actually say to people when when they are not like that it's like well no you if you're going to work remotely you have to be part of more of a social, a, a virtual social online thing, so I think it's, and I think that's, that, that'll become more of a challenge as we get bigger, because right now we're only 12, so it's very easy to spot everybody, you know, what they're doing, um, but the, as we get bigger, I think we'll have to be, sort of more and more enforce the fact that people can't have offline conversations sort of bilateral email, I, like I've banned email, for example, everybody that starts, they get an email from me saying, don't email me. Because, you know, I just decided, and you re- when you start thinking about it, email is just um, a spur. It's a communication spur. Emails just end up in people's inboxes, and then you have this weird reply-all thing, slightly passive-aggressive BCC thing, and then sort of, and, you know, everybody's trying to channel stuff via email, and I just realized this is just horrible. Didn't Donald Trump say don't do email? Oh, he doesn't do the email thing. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's the one so, thing, <laughs> the one thing I agree with Donald on. <laughs> But, um, but And so, for example, I say, no, you can't do email because email um, removes the opportunity for other people to see you know, what you're saying in, in the company. So everything is discussed in HipChat. And so, so we have that default to transparency ethos. At the back. Um, did you go through, before you jumped into hiring people full-time, did you go through any, a phase of having you know part-time freelancers, contractors, that kind of thing? And if so, at what point did it... What do you feel is the right point to move from that to full-time staff? And what are the pros and cons? Um, so the, it's partly about the demands of your business. So I think that looking back, we should have hired um, full-time support people much earlier. So there was a lot too long when Keith and I were doing support when um, we should have just hired people to do that job. Um, and I think it was the, sort of the imposter syndrome um, that I was talking about before, that it, it takes you a leap. And I think maybe this is probably where VCs or investors or advisors do have a good role to play, because they do expect you to kind of scrub up earlier. Um, and it took us longer to hire. We should have hired much earlier in a much more confident way. Um, but yes, that, that sort of three-month contract that I was talking about. So in the States, we will actually employ people for three months, and they know their contract finishes at three months. And, and, it, and during that three-month period, we then discuss... Um, whether we're going to extend it. But in, in Europe, it's happened as much where people have been on, on um, freelance contracts. Um, and and in fact, actually, it takes us time to set up. We wouldn't set up to employ somebody in a, in a country without knowing we're, we were really going to hire them. So in fact, most people, remote people in Europe, um, have started on a, on a freelance contract. And then if we're all good to go, then we can set up um, uh, set up to, to employ them directly. But I think that you know the suck it and see freelance contract can only work for, um, for so long because we do, we do have somebody actually on our books who works for us on a regular basis who's a, who's a freelancer. Um, I personally believe though that if we're building a company and we're trying to grow, I want to hire people because I want people to be part of the growth. They, want, they, they need to be part of the company's history and what it wants. And, so, and I've been a freelancer myself for, for years and years. And I think the problem with freelancers is, is that they're also hedging their bets. They're never really committing. And so we are actively looking for people who do want to be part of the You Can Book Me ship and not sort of you know dip in and out. Um, although it's a very it 's a very useful tool when you're trying to kind of um, manage your finances and your cash flow and trying to get things done we 've done for example we did this once and we wouldn 't do it again. We used one of the agencies who would who would um who promise the kind of the software developer you know like basically out of a box it's just like oh it's out of a box you know and it's a month or it's a two-week thing and and it's, and, you know, it's low risk and we'll give your money back and it's absolutely brilliant and i just feel like there's sort of like these chain gangs of software developers somewhere in in in, in, in somewhere remote places that are ready to kind of work on your project and um, they email us all the time and recruitment agencies and the rest of it and i generally say no to all of that because i am trying to control the process very much because of this because of my um, you know, success actually at whittling down and finding the people who've also worked as hard to find us. So often the people we've hired have been the people who were working as hard to find a company like ours to work for as the other way around. thank you was there one, uh, Rand, I yeah. Hey, I w- Bridget, thank you very much. This was great. I I was curious about the process that you described for sort of blind hiring. Yes. Right, where you have multiple answers to questions. Can you can you describe that format? And do you use any specific tool to get that in front of your people? Maybe you can just go into depth on that process. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so when we hired um, a couple of developers, we, we advertised on Stack Exchange. And I did all of the, I controlled all of the process, and I was the one managing all of the applications and communicating with them and stuff. And so when we ended up with a, a short list and I sent them that spreadsheet, Um, Keith and Antonio were the ones who actually did the shortlisting, so um, I removed all of the personal information about those answers so Keith and Antonio could just see 10 10 answers um, and, and they shortlisted five from that. And I've got to say one of those people was a woman and I was really pleased in terms of the challenge of hiring female engineers, the fact that I knew she had got in as a shortlist on the basis of her answers alone and absolutely nothing else to do with um, you know, her experience, her background, which told me that this was a positive process. And I think from what you were saying this morning about diversity as well, all the other unconscious bias that you get in selection where you think, because you, 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 you look at 20 people and you've got your favorites, and you don't realize that that bias is coming in at that stage to find people who are familiar to you. So um, we, in terms of female engineers, we also have a, a reverse problem, which is we don't have any male customer support people. And, and we've really struggled because we then, we do exactly the same process. And what me and Kate do is that Kate will do all of the, um, the shortlisting, uh, so she will do all of the corralling of the information, and um, and shortlisting, and then if there's a, we, we used to interview together. And we realized that we had very similar reactions to most people. So then what I would do is I would come in and interview two, three people, and I would literally know nothing about these people. So I'd sit in front of them and say, so you've now, you, you know, you're now at the final stage interview, and I know nothing about you. So this is your opportunity to tell me, you know, give me, give me a sense of why you're, why, why, why you could be working, you can book me. So again, it's that opportunity of fresh, fresh eyes when I did it with them I got slightly obsessive about it with uh, the head of operations and so what I said to people was when you fill out the application um, don't tell me your name or anything else about you just put in your mobile phone number and I will track the application from um, the you know the stuff that I had using our ATS so so in case anybody doesn't use an ATS, I really recommend using some form of software that manages applications and puts it into a system because if you're dealing with hundreds of applications you can't do that by email and pdf attachments whatever it's completely crazy so you need some system where it's a funnel that is is managing people through Um, and yes the, uh, the the mobile phone number thing worked really well because it meant that I could have 20 people who had all put their mobile phone numbers in so I could read the questionnaires fairly and then it annoyed me you see when people would put stuff in their answers which totally revealed to me where they were because i thought if you're going to be my head of ops and this is like the no hire feelings if you're going to be my head of ops i would want you to understand why i've wanted to anonymize the data and now you're making it very clear in your answers who you are so you're not you're trying to sabotage my you know my, my attempt to try to anonymize and so that becomes a no hire so, um, but did you see what you mean though? Because you're just like, well, no, because you, you have to be able to understand this process because head of ops will have to themselves do this process. They're gonna be the ones that have to push it forward next time. So, um, yes, the, or somebody put in a different mobile phone number to the one on their application. It's like, no, I can't track you now. I don't know who you are because uh, you have a different phone number. Didn't you understand the point? But then what happened was, I didn't do the, the Skype interviews for those five people because I was obsessed with them, and they were, they were all the people that were going to... That job was about replacing a lot of what I've been doing for the last couple of years. So Keith and Kate, I gave them the five people um, I wanted them to interview. I gave them six... Really, it really makes me sound like a terrible control freak. I gave them six questions, <laughs> and I said, just ask them these questions. Don't, you know, don't busk. Don't improvise, just do these six questions. And so they did these six questions and they had no idea who these people were. So again, they came to it fresh. They hadn't got their their bias built up. And so then they came to me and they said, right, this person and this person. The, the, other five, the other three, you know, weren't, weren't suitable, but we know you could work with these two. And then those two came to Bedford, and I actually did quite a long one-to-one interview with both of them. So I think it has to work in different ways, but I think you, you have, you, you're kidding yourself if you think that you don't have yourself bias or favourites. So um, And I haven't heard, and Stack Exchange got back to me and said, um, how did that go? Because obviously they're trying to evaluate their programme. And I said to them, I think that... Um, um, recruitment jobs boards, people should think a lot more about taking um, personal details away from the way they advertise. Because actually, Stack Exchange could could further the interests of a much more diverse range of engineers if they if they stopped with the you know the kind of the op- the, the opportunity for that rock, rock star marketing and, and advertisement that so skews um, people's views. Everyone's a rock star ninja if you're a of coder. Um, any more questions? There's one over here. Chris, back. Uh, hi, Bridget. Hi. Um, how do you handle the nightmare that is US payroll? Oh, <laughs> um, well, actually, no, it's no, not... Actually, can we broaden that question? Right. How do you... <laughs> any non-Bedford payroll across different countries? And so you, so and I'm sure that all of our clutch of accountants and lawyers will probably have a LinkedIn group by now because we just have to... You know, you just have to set up logistically. So in the US... Our lawyers first advised us, get a, I was talking to somebody about this the other night, get us a a PE, whatever, it's an employer's agency, so you'll get a company in America to do it all for you. Um, And it's undoubtedly, given my experience since then, I've realised it is a complete nightmare, because you want to employ somebody in Georgia, you have to set up as an employer in Georgia, so obviously we've got an incorporated company in the US, so we have to do that first, then we have to set up in the particular... Um, state that we want to employ uh, somebody in and they need to know all about payroll and everything else and, um, and that costs money to do that. I, as I said, even though it's more expensive as a complete pain, I actually prefer, I want people to have pay, you you can put me on their payslip. So I didn't go down the route of the um, arm's length employers organisation that can do it all for you, partly because I think we're going to hire more people in the US, you might as well start as you mean to go on. Um, having said that though, is a complete pain, so we have an accountant in the US who manages um, um, all of our uh, sort of money back and forth that has to go there to pay those guys. We use what was called Zen Payroll, but they've now changed it to Gusto, which is a pretty good um, application. It's, 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 it'll handle all of your state filings and tax, um, uh, with, um, you know, uh, um, withdrawals or whatever from people's, um, pay packets and so on and so forth. So, so that all happens actually you know, with the power of the cloud fairly straightforwardly and easily. And the things that we have um, been tripped up on is more of the, um, the state Um, legislation to do with compliance things like you know you've got to get workers compensation insurance in one state but you don't need it in another state and the biggest problem for me the biggest bugbear is that it's almost impossible to get health insurance for multiple employees in the US if they live in different states so not only do you need more than one person um, you you, you can't just get sort of a group health care for just one person which would make sense the health care insurance providers like them all to be in the same state they don't like people out of state Um, they don't like people living in different states to where you are registered so if we're not registered in any state then we won't get it. Blue Cross will do a different scheme in North Carolina to the one that they'll do in Michigan and it's a complete nightmare and um, so we've, we've ended up with and I, did, I don't understand it because I'm not trying to not pay it <laughs> you know just, I really would like to pay you know good health care I'm paying good top dollar so where do I do that and they just say like, no you can't do it no no so um, um, so we've ended up with personal health care plans for our employees because it's almost impossible for us to do that. So that's another remote problem, um, that remote is difficult in the US um, unless you get to a point where I suppose you can, you can start to, you have enough people in one state um, to justify a group plan. Um, What was your other question about hiring other people? So, yes, hiring in the US, in in Europe, I was talking about this last night, it's very hilarious because um, it can really uh, take as long as two or three months as it did in Spain. And I have a, um, we actually have our, I I love our Spanish accountants. They're really, really good. And we found them through European enterprise network type people who would give us, you know, gave us advice. And... um, you have to set up everything in, in spain has to be translated twice contracts have to be done twice everything has to be stamped on every single page you have to get the apostle Hague apostle thing stamped corrected in spanish sent over by courier it, the whole thing takes months and then the, our accountant will um, you know every month when when we do the payroll she says please send us a receipt we are the we are you can book me as legal representatives in spain and it's a very sort of formal and bureaucratic and quite scary process. And it's, you know, it's very sort of thick with um, uh, paperwork. Um, Ireland, oh, we can just set you up. Don't worry. You know, you, know, you, can, you just pay her. We'll set you up as an employer before, um, you know, by the end of the month. But we'll put her on payroll in the meantime. We're like, really? You don't want anything translated or stamped? No, 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 it can all be done. So in Ireland, it got done in sort of literally half a day. Um, and the accountants were absolutely brilliant. And then we run payroll. So we use Zero accountancy software, which we're sort of coming to the end of our kind of um, ability really in terms of it's generally for small businesses and um, we're kind of outgrowing it a bit, but they do really well because all the payroll from Ireland and um, Germany is our next place where we're gonna set up. And I hear that takes a couple of days. So that's really good. Um, so, you know, all that payroll comes through into Zero, and then it just gets processed um, as a normal UK cost, but we're paying tax, we're paying social security um, and um, employment, um, you know, benefits and stuff. And they have they have their own European countries um, uh, contracts all in those countries. So we obviously would be a we, we'd be a big loser if the UK left the EU. <laughs> Just as a little thing, <laughs> little <laughs> extra little point there. Um, yeah, one, one last one. One perhaps. final one there. Thank you very much uh, for for the talk, Bridget. Uh, I just have a small question. Okay. Uh, how do you go about finding uh, your new hires? You mentioned Stack Exchange. Yes. But uh, how do you go about, uh, do you use other channels as well, or is it only Stack Exchange or in your website? Fi- I'm finding new hires. Yes. Um, so, people have come in through different routes. Yes, so we advertise on Stack Exchange. Um, I wasn't um, really happy, if I'm being honest, with the diversity of the, of, the, of the applications. I would have preferred to have a much wider pull. Um, on the other hand, though, we made some good hires from that um, process. We also, it just depends on the job. Um, we've had um, people who have speculatively applied um, to us, who we've ended up working with. We found them by word of mouth, so um, when we were looking for um, a React developer, um, we went through a whole process on Stack Exchange and nearly made a hire and then didn't quite. And then actually the person we ended up hiring um, came through the network in Spain. The only problem, of course, with networks is that you end up, people's networks tend to be very similar to their own networks. And so um, as much as you, you know, we're, we're still hungry to, to hire really talented engineers and stuff, I also want to try to advertise on as wide a um, a range as I possibly can, if anybody's hearing this in terms of I've got an opportunity for a public forum, is that I would really like, you know, jobs boards for all of the diversity that is going on in terms of coding and engineering and encouraging more people that are, haven't come from a traditional sci background, whether that is not just women and um, and girls, but also, of course, anybody from any non-white um, um, a and, and non-Western um, background, I would really like to know where those boards are and where, as companies who are really committed to that kind of inclusion and an openness, where we can go and advertise. And I will always um, spend a couple of quid on a jobs board if I feel like it is trying to reach out to as many people, um, you know, to, 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 to get our advert out there. So I hope that helps. I mean, it's something which, as I said, we are, we are advertising particularly at targeted at remote Remote workers, so that that comes at from a completely different perspective to if you are in oh. Seattle and you and you know people need to move to Seattle or, or live in Seattle to work for you. We are, we are very agnostic about where anybody is. Fabulous, right? I think that's all we have time for. Um, do we get Keith? Oh, up? Keith. Well, you can meet Keith. He's here. Yeah. There's Keith. Come up. He's the CTO. <laughs> but I'm I'm very pleased actually. Um, I'm very pleased that Rand was also talking about being a husband and wife team because we're obviously a husband and wife team. If any of you are thinking we're like, well, oh, they're very close those two in the uh, conference. <laughs> <And> so, like, <laughs> We're actually, a, yeah, we're and that, that's also made it, that's answered quite a lot of questions that people have raised about co-founders and stuff, because of course for me and Keith, we are co-founders, but we also are sharing 100% of what we're doing. So we do have that opportunity and we've got a good, I hope, blend of tech skills and, and um, management skills for, that, that you would need um, for any company. So I don't know, Keith, do you want to say anything? No. <laughs> you see. The tech skills to the fore. <laughs> <laughs> you'll he'll, you'll you'll code it. There. Yeah, but say hello. Will we can come up and say hello and find out yeah. more about the company or um, anything at all? Yes. It's really good to catch up with it's brilliant Brilliant. And Bridget, thank you so much, Mark. Keith, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>